concretely, that would be an organization, a collection of people that come together to create value through inputs to create the most outputs and to do so in the most efficient um, in the most efficient way possible. I think an organization is also something that has an identity, um, so an organizational identity. And that identity also helps people in that organization to understand what they're doing, who they are, who they're not. So in versus them, us versus them, let's say, and why they are doing things. Think of a company that stood for greatness. I'll give you a moment. Maybe it's launching missions to Mars. Maybe it reflects all the things you believe in. Maybe you just really like what it makes, a soap, soup, or a sweater, and can't imagine life without it. Or maybe it's gone, and all you're left with is fond memories. We all know a company or two that came crashing down in a flash, like Kodak, for example, that was completely decimated by the rise of digital photography. The fall of great companies can seem mysterious at first, but on a closer look, there's always a story to tell. As individual habits intermingle, they become the habits of organizations. They begin to form a whole that's much greater than the sum of its parts. This powerful collective of habits multiplying is as life-affirming as it can be deadly and in turn determines the fate of groups and organizations. Hi and welcome back to Season 2 of Habits Matter. I'm your host, Shreyasi Singh, founder and CEO of Harappa Education. On this episode, meet two very special guests, an organizational behavior specialist and a higher educationist. Ahead, we explore the meteoric rise and fall of organizations, the crash of Nokia, the magic of Lego, and the good habits that help companies stand the test of time. As a former business journalist and a keen student of the history of entrepreneurship, this episode is special. The factors that are responsible for the downfall of great organizations are usually of two kinds. One that is most talked about. And those reasons are usually external or structural. So, for example, uh, an organization uh, is in a market which changes dramatically or customers who the, or the beneficiaries that the organization serve change their preferences or some kind of competition creeps up or or some kind of regulatory change happens, or even capital dries up. And, and most of these stories around the downfall of organizations are around these factors. Meet Anastup Nayak, Director of Classroom Instruction and Practice at the Central Square Foundation, and an education specialist from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Anastup identifies two broad forces that shape the fate of organizations. The first force, he says, exerts its influence from outside, like COVID-19, that has spelled disaster for the travel and hospitality industry, for example. In this episode, however, we turn our attention to the other kind of force, the one that rests in our own hands, the one that lurks in our cubicles and meeting rooms. But I think what is less talked about and perhaps more important are the reasons why organizations fail because of reasons that are internal to them which are essentially around their culture, around how they build their products, how they build uh, their people, how they 
deal with the resources, both financial and human resources that they have. And these internal and cultural issues, in a sense, become uh, the real reason why many really good organizations fail. We spoke to Dr. Ali Fennick to find out why some of the greatest companies have failed and fallen, or may do so in the days ahead. Dr. Fennick is a professor of organizational behavior at HALT, where he teaches the use of psychology to improve organizational performance. He's also a speaker and HBR contributor and founder and CEO of Lead TCML, a research-driven consultancy in behavioral economics. I, I think there's a couple of reasons you know, why that's happened. Malpractice can, you know, uh, under the radar evolve and become part of the whole culture in that organization. And also, especially when the profit motive is at play, you know, when do you make a decision? If you work for one of the big banks and you say, whoa, should we allow this one big payment to go through or um, this purchasing of specific shares? Again, when the profit motive is at play, it can affect, of course, how people make decisions. You know, it's something what we call the slippery slope. Energy trading company Enron is the perfect example for the point Fennec makes. In its days of glory, Enron featured in Fortune magazine as America's most innovative company for six consecutive years. Then, in 2001, analysts caught whiff that something was wrong with the company's financial statements. The scandal grew more obvious as details of the fraud came to light. Turned out, the company was hiding billions of dollars in debt. In just half a year, the stock price of the company fell from $90 to a dollar per share. The rest was history. Enron finally filed for bankruptcy in 2001 and ceased operations in 2007. Not all downfalls have sinister beginnings and endings though. In other cases, great organizations see great resistance to change. This resistance can sometimes be an early indicator that a company is headed for trouble. One of the early indicators of that is when the organization stops learning. And what I mean by that is it stops being in touch with reality. It stops listening to its customers. It stops caring for its employees, stops developing exciting new products and it stays the way it has been for some time while the world outside is changing, almost like that proverbial frog in the, in the boiling water. The frog doesn't realize that the water is really warming up. Um, I think Olson in his paper, he calls this the premium position captivity. Basically, it's a certain bias that you fall into as a manager, believing, you know, high returns, great market growth. Why should we change the recipe when the food tastes so good, right? So it's hard to break away when something works really well. New innovation actually starts to seep in initially very, you know, with with a very basic technology, but they do offer something unique. And then over time, it starts to erode the market um, below the radar of the, the bigger organization of the incumbent. And then before you know it, it has advanced and improved so well that it eventually takes over um, the, the overall market and eventually disrupts the market. Uh, Blockbuster and Netflix, for example, or the Sony transistor radio versus the old, you know, the old radios that people used to have in the 1940s that everyone used to come to and listen to. Many of these biases are unconscious. Consider this public statement from the CEO of Nokia when it got acquired by Microsoft. I remember him saying like, you know, we didn't see this happen. We did everything right. 
So it, it's, it's that bias that is so powerful in influencing people to not see what's actually happening. Nokia controlled 41% of the mobile phone market worldwide before Android and Apple came and crushed it. In 2000, the company accounted for a mind-boggling 4% of Finnish GDP and 70% of Helsinki's stock exchange capital. It made the tiny country a cultural global power. So what went wrong? The short story is that Nokia is a classic example of premium position captivity, or more simply, of getting imprisoned by its own success. It ended up overestimating the role of hardware to the exclusion of software. The production process was dominated by hardware engineers in stark contrast to emerging competitors like Apple, where hardware and software teams were encouraged to work together to design holistic devices. Anastup shares the example of another organization to say how routine can go very wrong and even prove deadly. And uh, that organization is NASA. If you remember, in 1986, the NASA Space Shuttle Challenger exploded uh, mid-flight. And that was an earth-shattering event, actually. I was a small kid at that point of time, and I clearly remember watching the television and seeing this space shuttle explode. And there were seven people on board the space shuttle, and one of them was um, someone I had really admired uh, because just leading up to it, uh, there was a lot of publicity around Krista McAuliffe, who was uh, a school teacher who was, was going up. And, and she was uh, killed alongside a lot of uh, uh, other uh, co-passengers. And, and the Challenger disaster wasn't just a technical failure. Bob Ebling, an engineer, saw it coming and alerted his team, who, operating on the information provided, made calls to management to argue for a postponement. Unfortunately, the warning took a backseat in the rush to meet deadlines. The incident is often discussed in the context of workplace ethics. It brought to light big problems in the organization, like the failure to communicate effectively among teams. After the incident, NASA implemented massive cultural changes. When I think of this episode, it, it reminds me of many, many organizations which I, I have seen and they have failed because they started deprioritizing their mission or their core business or their core focus on, on their customer and started prioritizing other things. For example, some kind of sunk cost, some kind of established ways of doing things, um, so on and so forth. And the example that you talked about, Nokia failed for a similar reason. They prioritized their sunk investment in the Symbian operating system, which was bundled into their phone, and, and they could not respond quickly to what was happening outside, which, is, uh, which was a completely different uh, game. Moving on from the bad to the brilliant, we went a little further to find out what increased the chances that an organization will survive, thrive, and stand the test of time. What are the good habits that set companies on the path to success? It's a question I ponder a lot about, because really for a founder, it's not just the product you sell that is what you create. It's the company you build that is your main creation. Vision plays a really big role here. When we look at most innovation in organizations, we can say about that 75% or almost 80% of innovation is incremental innovation. That means it's just like, this is version 1.2, 1.4. 
versus the more uh, transformative in innovation, right? Where you kind of look uh, new marketplaces, but new technology. So a leader's vision or a company's ability to kind of um, plan for those strategic initiatives at an innovation level and invest in them um, is really important. And I think a lot of companies, they feel very safe sticking to their core markets because that's where most of the money is coming from. The companies that shy from innovation or fail to recognize a changing market like Nokia fall by the wayside. Those that embrace change and nurture creativity grow. Professor Fennick illustrates this with the case study of Lego, the popular Danish toy company. As Lego's revenues declined with digital competition, the company had to think of new ways to reinvent itself. And it did. Today, the so-called kids toy has an initiative called Lego Serious Play which uses 3D models to improve communication and creative thinking in teams. I think Lego is a great example of a company that could have easily just disappeared, but through just changing the way they think about how to position Lego, um, to even create movies out of it, I mean, that was a great way to kind of, you know, build the business, but at the same time, stay core to what they do best. Um, and I think that's probably also another example of companies, why some companies do succeed, and some companies don't. Growth mindset, as you know, is a, is a very interesting term which has come into prominence uh, after Stanford uh, professor Carol Dweck wrote about it and others also um, have, have come before her. And the whole idea was that can we respond to new interventions in our environment, both in our external and internal environment with, uh, with a way of of thinking about it as, yes, this seems new, I may not be ready for it, but this is not something I cannot do, it's something I have not done yet. Therefore, you give yourself the room to experiment, therefore you give yourself the room to fail once, try out new things and really build uh, a new capability. And that's exactly what Microsoft um, has done. Microsoft took a back seat when the internet became the driving force of business, the driving force of society, because Microsoft at a point could not anticipate or could not participate um, in all the changes that was happening through the introduction of the internet. It did, it did reasonably well, but it certainly couldn't master uh, that entire uh, dynamics but interestingly, in the last several years, since Satya Nadella had taken over as the CEO, Microsoft has uh, really bounced back for a company which was uh, essentially perceived as, as somewhat of a gone case uh, or a lumbering giant, as they used to call it, uh, to now you know, a really, really successful uh, organization. Work culture matters and leaders play a big role in shaping it, especially when things get rough. For more on inspiring leadership during times of crisis, you can also tune in to our other podcast, Locked on Leadership. For now, don't go anywhere. Keep listening. From the leaders I have watched closely, I think they do three things ahead of us, everything else. One is that they set an inspiring goal, something which is highly desirable, but yet seemingly impossible. So when Kennedy set up this goal that there will be a man on the moon, the entire United States rose up to that challenge in the 1960s. 
um, everything is driven by uncertainty at this stage. And I think, you know, uh, for managers or leaders who are leading people in organizations, they, they are facing probably one of the most daunting tasks of their lives. Don't overreact, um, you know, because when, especially in a, in, in a crisis situation, um, you know, our survival mode kicks in and we, uh, there seems to be a lot of um, irrationality, um, you know, making hasty choices based on emotions, fear, fearful of losing the business. Um, more rational thinking, critical thinking needs to be brought back into the boardroom, into management discussions. Leaders must work to create a trust-rich environment where open communication is the norm. Open communication begins with building a culture where people feel safe to express themselves. It's the safety that leads to a boost in mental well-being, and happy people are naturally more engaged and productive. This isn't easy to do, even with the best intentions. You can never really know how everyone is feeling every moment of the week. And the third area, I think, where good cultures provide uh, a lot of support is is a culture where there is more trust and empathy and understanding, uh, where people communicate openly, where there is uh, respect for truth, where uh, people are given a safe space. And uh, and when you add all of these together, that there are, there's an orientation towards results, there is a focus on learning, and there is an underlying uh, set of uh, structures which build trust and empathy, then uh, people really flourish. You want to allow the whole person to bring themselves to the workplace. And for this to happen, you need to allow themselves to be themselves. You need to create a safe environment. Talk about innovation. If, you, if there's this this work culture where um, you get slapped down for making mistakes, then innovation won't happen. People won't speak up. There's not that psychological safety. Um, that's from an innovation perspective, but also from an inclusiveness and diversity perspective that you also want to allow the whole person to bring themselves to work, regardless of your religion, your gender, your orientation. I think organizational cultures that are able to emulate that vision or that you know those values I think those are the companies that are really going to stand out uh, and who are going to win the war for talent, I believe, as well, because that's what people want nowadays, more than ever before. Open communication also means giving people the freedom to critique with reasonable restrictions. When it stays at the level of work and away from personal attacks, criticism and feedback becomes a stepping stone for individuals, teams and organizations to bloom and flourish. Some legendary companies have enshrined it in their values, going as far as to call it the obligation to dissent. Freedom to critique is a value we hold dear at Harappa, for example, and changed it from the sentiment of obligation and dissent after a wise young colleague told me that any obligation and dissent for the sake of it are as forced and suffocating as keeping quiet can be. While critique is important, uh, we should focus on moving towards a solution. I think very often many conversations stay at the level of critique and, and, and they really get in the way of getting to, to actions, getting to solutions, getting to results. And I think we need to move the conversation forward. Any work culture that encourages free expression, constant learning, creative thinking and problem solving will allow the making of mistakes. For without failure, there is no growth. And without growth, there are no great organizations. Upholding greatness is even harder than achieving it. 
but glory has its limits. Like living things, organizations grow, make mistakes and fall, sometimes to never come back. I think it's dangerous to believe that there's this inevitable growth. There's a yin and a yang and, and, and things go up and down. And I think as long as we take that as a given, um, that will make us much more humble. We are not in control of things. And that the best thing that we can do is we need to find ways to manage chaos. And that with chaos means that we will have moments of growth in chaos, but there will also be moments of decline. Habits Matter is a show brought to you by Harappa Education. This episode was scripted, produced and managed by Nitin Shamsuddin and Soumya Balgana under the editorial direction of Seema Chaudhary. Shout out to Madhvan, our super talented audio engineer and a brilliant design team for our snazzy creators. Follow Habits Matter on Instagram and Harappa Education on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube and Facebook.